Africa rise and shine Africa zorza Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Dimsibudi Makura. In our top stories in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, warring parties in South Sudan urge to show restraint and UN envoy calls on DRC parties to implement December agreement. In economics news, Chinese companies to undertake a recapitalization study for Zambia Railways. And in sports news, a Kenyan runners dominate the Boston Marathon. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. also discovered farms in Alexandria and the neighboring province of Bihera that were used to make explosives and store weapons. Warring parties in South Sudan have been urged by the United Nations to show restraint in the face of an escalation in violence and to remember their responsibility towards protecting civilians from conflict. Fresh fighting has broken out between government and opposition forces in a number of locations including Raga in the west of South Sudan, Wat in Jongli to the east and in the area of Wankur and Tonga in the northern Upper Nile region. The spokesperson for the UN mission in South Sudan, Daniel Dickinson. Well, fresh fighting has broken out between government, SPLA and opposition forces in a number of locations across South Sudan. They um, include Raga in the west of the country, Wat in Jongle to the east and in the area of Wunkur and Tonga in the northern uh, Upper Nile region. And it's important to remember that this follows recent fighting in Pajok in the south of the country. At least 6,000 people have been forced to flee to Uganda from Pajok and Reportedly, several dozen uh, were, were killed following an attack by government forces uh, on the town. The top official at the United Nations Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo has been meeting with political leaders to find ways to implement an agreement that paves the way for elections in the country. UN Special Representative Maman Sambo Saduko received a delegation from opposition groups and also met with other leaders and civil society in connection with the accord. The agreement signed on the 31st of December last year calls for elections to be held before the end of this year and a peaceful transition of power in its aftermath. Turkey has extended a state of emergency in the country for another three months, just a few days after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won a referendum extending his executive powers. The state of emergency was initially imposed following a failed coup in the country in July. Since then, it has already been extended twice. The reforms will change Turkey's parliamentary system into a presidential one. The office of the prime minister will be abolished. The president will appoint the cabinet and an undefined number of vice presidents will be able to select and remove senior civil servants without parliamentary approval. 
And finally, leader of South Africa's opposition, the DA, Musiz Maimani, will lead opposition parties in a march to the Limpopo Treasury Department in Bulukwane in Limpopo province in what has been dubbed as a campaign against state capture. This follows an anti-Zuma march to the union buildings in Pretoria last week, which attracted thousands of protesters and countrywide protests. DA spokesperson Mabin Siabi says the provincial government's coffers are empty because of state capture. Witness Diba reports. DA's Mabin Siabi says the march is aimed at all the provincial government departments as he says, they failed to create job opportunities for the people of Limpopo. He says what he calls poor ANC economic policies are to be blamed for lack of job opportunities and poor service delivery in some rural parts of the province. The Treasury Department is led by MEC Rob Tuli. It will be for the first time that the EFF, COPE, DA and UDM marches jointly to raise similar grievances with the province's authorities. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Tuesday, April the 18th, the 108th day of 2017, with 257 days left in the year. Our top story, warring parties in South Sudan are being urged by the most senior UN official in the country to show restraint in the face of an escalation in violence and to remember their responsibility towards protecting civilians from conflict. Fresh fighting has broken out between government and opposition parties in a number of locations, including Raga in the west of South Sudan, Wat in Jongle to the east, and in the area of Wunkur and Tonga in the northern Apanal region. It follows recent fighting in Padrock and a week ago in Wawu town and the surrounding area which led to the displacement of thousands of people. Daniel Dickinson, the spokesperson for the UN mission in South Sudan Unmis has been speaking to Jocelyn Sambira about the situation in the country and how the clashes are affecting civilians. Well, fresh fighting has broken out between government, SPLA and opposition forces in a number of locations across South Sudan. They um, include Raga in the west of the country, Wat in Jongle to the east and in the area of Wunkar and Tonga in the northern uh, Upper Nile region. And it's important to remember that this follows recent fighting in Pajok in the south of the country. At least 6,000 people have been forced to flee to Uganda from Pajok, and reportedly several dozen uh, were were killed following an attack by government forces uh, on the town. And then a week ago in the northwestern town of Wau, there were also attacks. So there are many parts of South Sudan which are affected. The capital, Juba, incidentally, where, as you remember, there was uh, quite severe fighting last July, has remained peaceful. Why is it happening now? There have been many individual skirmishes and outbreaks of violence over the past few months. Now we're seeing a number happening concurrently, and that's obviously of concern to the UN mission here. Now, UNMIS is 
urging the warring parties to show restraint in the face of this escalation in violence and remember their responsibility towards protecting civilians from conflict. Because, of course, it's the uh, civilians who always lose out in situations like this. What has happened to civilians? In Wild Town, fighting there has led to the displacement of thousands of people. The protection of civilian sites uh, adjacent to the base of the UN mission in the town has received around 13,500 people who fled their homes uh, due to violence. And that brings the number of people seeking protection in the camp uh, to almost 39,000. And we understand that 3,000 others have sought sanctuary at other non-UN compounds. Right now, South Sudan is an extremely dangerous country in which to be a humanitarian aid worker. What can UNMIS do? UNMIS continues to push for access to areas affected by the conflict. This is often problematic. Often patrols are held back. But despite these challenges and reaching some parts of the country, the mission has successfully deployed a number of uh, peacekeeping patrols to deter violence and uh, protect civilians. In Wow, for example, it was patrolling at least twice a day in the trouble spots in the town in order to show its presence and, and to try and build some confidence amongst the, uh, the citizens there. And, of course, UNMIS's mandate is also to monitor any human rights abuse taking place. What has the UN said? The acting special representative of the UN Secretary General, Mustafa Soumare, he he urged all parties uh, to the conflict to cease fighting. He urged all the parties to uh, prove their commitment to peace. He said they must show restraint and demonstrate their responsibility to ensure what he described as the sanctity of life of all uh, That was Daniel Dickinson, the spokesperson for the UN mission in South Sudan, speaking to Jocelyn Sambira of UN Radio. Political leaders in the Democratic Republic of Congo are being urged to implement an agreement signed last December, which paves the way for elections before the end of this year. The appeal was made by the UN envoy for the Great Lakes region, Saeed Jinnit, who says the holding of peaceful democratic elections is pivotal to stability in the country. The 31st December accord facilitated by the Congolese Catholic Church, known as Senko also sees President Joseph Kabila stepping down after the vote. Christina Silviero asked Janet about the challenges in the region, including ongoing insecurity in the eastern DRC. I'm of the view that the biggest challenge that uh, the region is still confronting is the, uh, the legacy to the uh, tragedies and the, and the conflicts of the past uh, as a result of the, uh, the, the genocide in Rwanda number of former uh, members of the Rwandan army and uh, those who participated in the genocide uh, have uh, moved to the DRC. And since 1994, the FDLR is in the DRC. There are also other groups. So this is one of the main challenges. Not only that they are a threat to the security of the population, uh, they are also involved in legal exploitation of natural resources, but they are also at the origin of the continued mistrust and uh, suspicion in the, in the countries of the region because some countries may suspect others of supporting these groups. We need to redouble efforts to neutralize these armed groups 
so that we could really um, improve the situation in the region. Turning to DRC, there is the ongoing um, electoral crisis. Do you think the December 31st agreement is on the right track? Well, I mean, so far, that's the only thing we have. And uh, I seize the opportunity to commend the parties for having been able to enter the leadership and the facilitation of the Senko to get to the agreement. The uh, parties were discussing some modalities uh, for the implementation of the agreement, and they made progress. And unfortunately, they got stuck on one or two issues on the modalities for the appointment of the prime minister and the appointment of the follow-up committee. Uh, that is regrettable. Uh, but uh, regardless, we believe that the agreement is the central piece to uh, forging uh, a consensual approach to uh, uh, creating conditions for a peaceful, democratic and inclusive elections. So we remain committed to that agreement and we continue to urge the parties to commit to scrupulously uh, implement that agreement. And in the face of the divide that seems to be ongoing, even with a new prime minister now? Yeah, well, as you know, Senko has concluded its, uh, its mediation, although it has stated that it will remain uh, at, available to help the, the, the people of, of the DRC. Uh, they have requested the president to ask the guarantors of the, uh, of the nation as the, uh, the head of state to help in uh, addressing the outstanding issues. The president has appointed a new prime minister, but the rassemblement have uh, not accepted that prime minister. So uh, we have uh, that situation, and that's why we continue to believe that the implementation of the 31st December agreement is central, and uh, we still believe that the parties should continue to discuss and seek consensual solution. You mentioned one of the key challenges in the region are the armed groups in the east of the DRC, ADF, FDLR. We also saw recently the M23 come back. How do you explain that these groups are still active? Yeah, actually, this is set back to the serious efforts that have been deployed by the leaders of the region in 2013. They were able to come out with the Nairobi declarations that provided arrangements for ending the, the crisis that uh, arose at that time uh, after the occupation of M23 and the defeat of the M23 by the armed forces of the DRC with the support of the Intervention Brigade of MONUSCO. They were expected to be repatriated uh, back from Uganda and uh, Rwanda to the DRC. Unfortunately, that uh, Nairobi declaration remained essentially unimplemented. So we are still calling on the parties, that means the DRC, XM23, with the support of the countries of, of the region, to remain committed to the implementation of the Nairobi Declaration. How worried are you with the recent rise in human rights violations, including the murder last month of two international human rights experts in the DRC and the Kasai region? I mean, in addition to the, the insecurity that was uh, uh, generated by the armed groups that we have been mentioning, uh, unfortunately, recently we have been uh, seeing uh, an upsurge of incidents of violence in other parts of the DRC, especially in the Kasai. And uh, the situation is unclear there, who is uh, doing what exactly. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there have been very serious uh, incidents of violence and uh, the killings of our two colleagues from the United Nations uh, uh, experts uh, working for justice and peace has been a serious uh, blow and setback. Uh, that's why we are really concerned, and uh, especially 
in the context of the preparation of the election. And uh, as you know, it's a period of uh, engagement of the population by the political actors. So the situation is not yet clear on who is doing what, uh, especially in the context of seeking uh, votes. So it's very important that the government uh, really uh, try to address the situation in the Kasais, because otherwise it could undermine the preparation of the election. What are your priorities in trying to help the DRC get beyond this crisis and to the next elections before the year's end? Well, uh, I think the stability is key to development, and this country has been doing rather well. Uh, and we believe that uh, uh, holding inclusive, free, and peaceful elections is pivotal to the stability of that country. That's why the United Nations, working together with other uh, institutions, is devoting a lot of energies through MONUSCO and the special representative on the, on the ground, and uh, as special envoy, have been very, very engaged and supportive of the dialogue process in the, in the, in the DRC. We believe that uh, uh, achieving uh, and uh, having a peaceful election According now that since you have a roadmap, which is the 31st December uh, agreement, will go a long way uh, in helping that country stabilize because otherwise it has very dynamic population, huge resources, and I think uh, achieving uh, peaceful elections is uh, very important for the country. That was the UN envoy for the Great Lakes region, Saeed Jinnit, speaking to UN Radio's Christina Silviero. Let's go back in time to today in 1971. Libya joins the United Arab Republic, which is Egypt, Iraq and Syria, to form a federation of Arab republics. That was today in history in the year 1971. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now concerns are growing for millions of people in Somalia where drought has left them struggling to survive. UNDP, the UN agency helping with development in the East African nation, cautioned that if drought turns to famine, recent progress in making the country more resilient to such shocks may be eroded. At the same time, UN Humanitarian Coordinating Agency OCHA warned that a suspected cholera outbreak is proving to be deadly. Daniel Johnson has more. 
Five years of UN-led state building in Somalia are at risk amid a drought that humanitarians fear could be on a par with famine that killed hundreds of thousands of people in 1992 and 2011. That's according to UNDP, the UN agency which is working with the federal government to build up state institutions across the country. Prior to 2012, the East African nation saw two decades of lawlessness and displacement following the overthrow of the military rule of President Siad Barre. Since then, progress has been made on state building, on expanding the rule of law and access to justice. But the country and its people are still very fragile and poorly equipped to deal with climate extremes that are directly impacting on their lives. That's according to UNDP country director David Akopian. Here he is speaking over the phone from Mogadishu. Of course, in the current crisis, the only response is to scale up the humanitarian assistance and to do as much as possible to save lives. But meantime, we also know that if the drought turns into famine, the way it happened in 2011, together with humanitarian and problems of mass starvation, it eventually will erode the state building projects and development gains so far. Mr. Akopian told journalists in Geneva that some areas of Somalia are still controlled by local militias, but it's not just insecurity that's hampering the country's recovery. In one regional capital, Beledwenya, flash floods hit six months ago, affecting half of the city. Today, the land is bone dry and totally unsuitable for grazing or farming. That's a matter of life or death for the country's three million strong nomadic population, which is estimated to have lost up to 80% of its livestock through the drought. It's also hampering Somalia's efforts to get back on its feet, so it can help the 6.2 million people who need humanitarian assistance, and especially the 2.9 million who are facing crisis or emergency levels of food insecurity. One result of Somalia's increasing vulnerability is the spread of preventable diseases. UN health teams have recorded more than 21,000 cases of suspected cholera to date, and more than 500 people have died so far this year from acute watery diarrhea. In Middle Juba region, fatality rates for suspected cholera are 14 times higher than emergency levels. While there have also been more than 3,800 suspected cases of measles since the beginning of 2017 in more than 100 districts in Somalia. To date, the UN-led famine prevention plan has already helped reach 5.5 million people with safe water, food, and other assistance. At nearly 70% funded, the $825 million appeal for Somalia has struck a chord with international donors. But Jens Laka from Ocha, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, warns that Somalia is close to famine and that people will die if aid doesn't reach them. 2.9 million people are either in crisis or emergency phase of food insecurity. We are talking about extreme. Food insecurity, people being essentially unable to feed themselves and their families. It's one step before we declare a famine. Climatically, that drought condition is going to continue. There is not a lot positive outlooks for the next six months. Spokesperson Jens Laka from Ocha, Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. Let's go back in time to today, in 2016, which is a year ago, at the Boston Marathon. Ethiopians won both the men's and women's races for the first time in history. Lemu Behanu Haley won the men's race in two hours, twelve minutes, and forty-five seconds, and Atsidi Baisa won the women's race in two hours, twenty-nine minutes, and nineteen seconds. That was today in history in the year 2016. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zora Afrika amka na unai South Africa's President Jacob Zuma attributes the ongoing calls for him to step down to his calls for radical economic transformation and accelerated land redistribution to benefit the poor black majority of South Africa. President Zuma was speaking during a service at the Twelve Apostles Church in Christ in Umkababa, south of Durban. The church, which has about 6 million followers countrywide, is known to be Zuma's strong support base. Meanwhile, Zuma criticized some church leaders, saying instead of praying for politicians, they cast stones and curse those in political authority. Vusi Makosini reports. Congregants waited patiently almost the whole day, eager to see President Zuma, who was delayed due to other commitments. Singing and praying became the order of the day as congregants pray for the president to say through the challenges he is encountering. The church also made it clear that it has full confidence in President Zuma's leadership. Pastor Mkulis Pagati explains. Speaking to the congregation, President Zuma said his call for accelerated land distribution and radical economic transformation has earned him distrust from those now calling on him to step down. The president also hit back at some church leaders who have joined those calling on him to step down. The president says church leaders are supposed to pray for politicians and not to be seen to be attacking those in political authority. (laughs) 
uma bepeta manja eze politiki abawa sebenzise bugunono asize abantu praying for political leaders in our country so that as much as they have the political authority they should treat people very well nebakumbuzu ukuthi amandla lawo bawuphethe politiki ilawa umdalo wethakhuluma ngawo athi bahloniphele labo abaphethele nebakhuleke uma bona nebacelisi you must remind them that uh, the powers that they have politically it is the very same powers that God has given to them and said please respect and pray those who are in power and advise them when they need futhi ngalifundi bible i also read the scriptures lele ngalifunda lalithi uma kukhona onayo nomwenza maphutha The one I read said if there's anyone who is transgressing or making mistakes abakholwayo ufane bamkhulekele those who believe maona bamthethelele those who believe must pray for him and when he see they must forgive him angaze mhlangane nalo lithi abaholi benkonzo makukhona ophumendleleni naba bajoyine laba bamjijela ngamatshe bayasicebisa basithandazele basibuyisa endleleni abasiqalekise ANC was not that provincial chairperson Sihlezigalala said why the ANC listen to people the party will never surrender to the pressure of the opposition he added that Zuma will not be removed through marches i am Vusima Kosini in Deben our headlines up next with Han Musa A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Egyptian officials have arrested 13 people suspected of planning attacks on the country's minority Christians as well as security forces. Warring parties and South Sudan urge to show restraint in the face of an escalation in violence and to remember their responsibility towards protecting civilians from the conflict. And South Africa's Police Minister Fikile Mbalula's decision to afford former AU Commission Chairperson Nkosizana Tlameni Zuma presidential VIP protection after allegedly receiving death threats has been questioned by constitutional law expert Shedrick Guto. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And India has called off talks with Pakistan which were scheduled to start yesterday. The decision is seen as its reaction over the death sentence handed down to an Indian by the rival nation. Delhi also imposed travel curbs and is said to be considering other retaliatory measures as tensions rose between the two nuclear armed neighbors. Ranasen has more. A Pakistani delegation was turned away before it could land in India for three days of talks on maritime security. But many, including opposition leader Manish Tiwari, insisted India must do more 
to save Kulbushan Jadav, who was charged with spying by a Pakistani military court. India argues that the charges against Jadav are fabricated and that he was kidnapped from Iran by Pakistani agents. Jitendra Singh is the top cabinet minister. The government of India realizes its responsibility to watch the interests of Jadav and other citizens who have been taken to ransom for reasons which are quite unfounded. And not only the government of India realizes this as an obligation towards somebody like Jadav, but also as a part of its understanding of the sensitivity which each of the Indian citizens attaches to the case of Jadav. But Subramaniam Swami, a close lieutenant of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, suggested India would get support if it liberated Pakistan's restive Balochistan province from its control and declared it an independent nation. We would get support from Iran. I have already informally verified that. Mr. Karzai was here. He was also of the view that Afghanistan would probably try to beat the race and be the first one to recognize it. So I think uh, some total of it, it is now time to deal with Pakistan more on cost-benefit rather than uh, the civilized approach of negotiating. India and Pakistan have fought three wars since their 1947 independence. Opposition Congress Party leader Sashi Tharoor said a military adventure of that sort may not be a very good idea. I'm not sure. I mean, to be very honest, I think there are other steps that can be taken, including steps we can't talk about publicly, uh, which fall short of military action. Largely because military action rarely solves anything, and also because India's own interests lie in a peaceful neighborhood, since we obviously are trying to attract foreign investment in our growing economy, and investors don't like war zones. So I don't really want to go that route until I absolutely have no other choice. India in 1971 carved out Bangladesh from Pakistan's eastern ramp. The humiliation still haunts Pakistan's powerful military and South Asian experts say it will do anything to avenge the defeat. For news break, this is Rana Sen reporting from New Delhi. It's 8.34 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1980. Southern Rhodesia gained independence from the British taking the name Zimbabwe. They marked the end of racial segregation after a protracted war of liberation that claimed many lives. That's today in history in the year 1980. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A new campaign in Mexico City aims to combat a touchy subject, sexual harassment on public transportation. A recent national survey found that nearly 90% of women feel unsafe on buses and subways. Faced with these alarming figures, UN Women, in partnership with the city government, launched the campaign hashtag No es de hombre, which translates as this is not what being a man is about. The campaign promotes what the agency says is a more respective form of masculinity. Ana Carmo spoke with Yeliz Osman, Safe Cities and Safe Public Spaces Program Coordinator at UN Women in Mexico, and began by asking her what life is like for women and girls in Mexico's most populous city. 
I think Mexico City is no different to other cities around the world. Um, sexual violence and harassment is an everyday occurrence for women and girls. Studies show that 50% of women have experienced a form of community violence, which is violence, sexual violence appearance experience in public spaces. So I think that Mexico City, like all cities in the world, has a huge problem in relation to sexual violence and harassment. And the forms of sexual harassment that we're trying to tackle through this campaign have been so normalized and naturalized um, within societies that women themselves don't often consider them important enough to report. Um, men don't even realize in many cases that is actually a form of violence and that the impact that it has on women and girls. So basically, the aim of the campaign was to raise awareness uh, of the impact of these forms of violence on women and girls and to generate empathy in the hope that we can create change in male attitudes and behavior. I do believe there's a lot of fear involved when we talk about sexual harassment in uh, public transportation. And one of the studies that you mentioned in the press release says that 87.7% um, of women feel unsafe in public transport. How do you yeah. feel that this fear can affect the daily lives of these women and their participation in society? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the fear, I mean, women's perceptions of their safety in Mexico City, as in many cities in the world, I think this fear can impact on their day-to-day -day lives and it impact on their decisions to go out at night, whether they want to take part in leisure activities. Um, in some cases, women have to change the way they dress. They need to go out accompanied by other people. And that's simply not acceptable. Women should be free to move around, to, to go to work, to go to school, you know, to take part in leisure activities free from, from the fear of constant harassment and violence. Do you think it is a cultural issue, the fact that men feel entitled to look and to behave in these ways around the world? Absolutely. I don't think it's a cultural issue that's limited to any country or region in the world. I think it's a cultural issue worldwide that it's socially acceptable and tolerated that men behave in this way. It's almost considered a natural part of male behavior. And the aim of this campaign is to transform this notion that it's natural. It's not natural. Not all men take part in, in, in this type of behavior. Not all men harass women. Not all men are violent. And what we're trying to say is that this isn't what being a man is about. It's not manly to behave this way. We don't want to perpetuate stereotypes about what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. However, what we're trying to say is, because our studies have found that the majority of men, and indeed women, do associate these behaviors as a normal part of manly behavior. What we're trying to say is, no, it's not. This does not make you more manly, more masculine. And there are forms of masculinity that are less harmful, that are more positive, that are respectful um, towards women and uh, more equal. And that's what we're trying to promote, a masculinity that is more Uh, that's based on, on women's rights and equality. And not all men are abusive. And so what we're trying to say is that men that are not abusive all stand together in support of women's rights. 
That was Yeliz Osman, Safe Cities and Safe Public Spaces Program Coordinator at UN Women in Mexico, speaking to Anna Carmo. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. In times of stress, people cling to their faith more than a child to their blanket, so faith-based organizations have a unique role to play in assisting refugees, a religious aid expert has said. Anwar Khan is the CEO of Islamic Relief USA. He participated in a discussion at UN headquarters on the role of faith-based organizations in refugee assistance. Lucy Dean spoke to Khan and began by asking about the ways organizations like Islamic Relief can prevent the radicalization of vulnerable populations. One, we show the mercy and the compassion of Islam. What you hear from others are fighting, fighting, fighting. And there is in Islam a concept of military. But if you take out all the love, all the compassion, all the mercy and the forgiveness, you don't have that faith anymore. So we are an example that we believe of the real faith. Our name is Islamic Relief and we believe that we practice these Islamic values. Now when young men come and all they see are the men with guns talking about Islam and they don't see men and women of love and compassion. They're going to model their behavior on the people who are talking about only violence. So we want to practice model behavior. Second thing is we want to work with them and understand their faith and what we are doing is trying to address some of their concerns and showing that, look, these Christian guys aren't trying to convert you in the work that we're doing. These secular guys aren't trying to get you on some kind of agenda that you think is against you. So it's bringing the message to the people. It's like getting advice from a friend. It's easier to take than getting advice from a stranger. That's really important. And there's a lot of good that these international organizations are um, doing. So we are showing that we are an example of how you can work with international aid agencies to make the world a better place. And we're changing the narrative because they think that the only people that like them are those that are radical. Many of them have been brainwashed in their understanding. They don't understand the true Islam. And with us, they see us practicing the true Islam. What particular strengths do religious organizations have that secular ones don't? And are there also limits to the things that religious NGOs can do because of the fact that they are religious? Yes and yes. Where they shine is one is they have a trust that other organizations may not be able to have because they're not just relief and development agencies. People trust in their faith and therefore they believe that they are working on behalf of a higher power. So they have that trust which secular organizations may be difficult to have. Second, many of these people of faith are willing to go to places where other agencies may not be willing to go because they may be killed. And they have a concept that if they die, then they go to paradise. So they may go to places where um, others don't want to go. The other thing is that often when you go to an area and you find a house of worship and they find out you're from that faith, they can become false multipliers. So you can get many people from that area to help you. Now, where the limits are, you need to make sure that you're inclusive and you don't just want people from your house of worship working with you. You also want people from the other houses of worship. You also want to help people who don't believe in any faith. Your job isn't to help your faith, it's to help all of humanity. The other limit is that in the same way some people really trust you because you're from their faith, some people may really hate you. The other thing is you have to be careful that you separate 
your relief development work from proselytizing. The main concern people have about faith-based organizations, and we have to acknowledge that, yes, sometimes that happens, but let's not ignore all the good that faith-based organizations can do. What are the advantages of having a strong faith in times of trouble, or what protection can it give? Like the title of this event mentions home. Is that something that faith can bring refugees who have often lost everything? That's one of the biggest advantages of faith-based organizations. You see, I can give you food, I can give you medicine, but often what refugees really want is hope, love. And people of faith, again, have their advantages and their disadvantages, but one of the advantages is that we can console people and give emotional counseling. And Islamically, if you say, we've been doing that here in America. We also sent some of our volunteers here to Lesbos, Greece to help the Syrian refugees that came. And we had um, a former Iraqi refugee, a former Afghan refugee. These are women in their 40s and their 50s. And the most important thing they did with the other refugees is give them hugs. Give them hugs, give them a smile, give them hope. They lost everything. They came to this great country. And they not only were able to flourish in this country, but they wanted to pay it forward and go back and help other refugees. Hope, hope, hope is the most important. People cling to their faith more than children cling to their blankets when they are in times of stress. It's extremely important and sometimes it's the difference between life and death. Is there anything you think is really important to note? I wanted to mention the importance of different faith-based organizations working together from different faiths. That was Anwar Khan, CEO of Islamic Relief USA, speaking to UN Radio's Lucy Dean. I'm Tabisa Lohoku with an economics update. Good morning. The Zambian government has engaged two Chinese railway companies to undertake a recapitalization study for Zambia Railways to enhance its operations. Transport and Communications Minister Brian Mushimba says plans to recapitalize ZRL were underway, aimed at enhancing its capacity in order to meet the demand of players in the transport sector. The minister was reacting to concerns raised by the Parliamentary Committee on Transport and Communications who wanted government to help recapitalize ZRL in order to boost its operations. Senegal's finance ministry will issue a eurobond this month in order to finance a series of infrastructure and power production projects that it hopes will push economic growth above 7% from next year. Finance Minister Amadou Ba declined to give the amount from of the issuance or its majority. Senegal is rated B1 by Moody's and B plus by Standard & Poor's. The Bank of Ghana says the yield on its 91-day bill fell to 16.35 a weekly on a weekly auction. The bank says it accepts 152.45 million US dollars worth of bids. Meanwhile, Botswana's consumer inflation inched up to 3.5% year-on-year in March from 3.4% in February. Prices rose 0.5% months and months compared to 0.2% previously. The Nigerian interbank lending rates has risen sharply by around 100 percentage points. This as commercial lenders scrambled for cash 
to pay for bond purchases and cover the positions. Overnight lending rates rose to around 300% from 200% at the end of last Wednesday as Zanara liquidity dried up in the banking system and some banks were forced to borrow from the central bank. Nigeria raised 345 million US dollars from bond sales last week. Sudan's annual rate of inflation has risen 34.68% in March from 33.53% the previous month. The country's economy has deteriorated since the South seceded in 2011. With revenue dwindling, the government of Sudan announced cuts to fuel and electricity subsidies in early November. That saw petrol prices rise around 30%, pushing up transport costs and feeding through its inflation. The US dollar trades at 13.36 in South Africa, 10.42 in Botswana, 9.38 in Zambia, 7.9 to the British pound, and 9.4 to the euro. Gold $1,283, platinum $979 an ounce, brand crude $55.28 a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lohoko. Channel Africa. South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. As sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lula. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, Godfrey Kirui, as well as Igna Kiblegant, led a Kenyan clean sweep at the Boston Marathon on Monday, both timing late bursts to perfection to claim the men's and women's races of the prestigious event. 24-year-old Kirui produced a devastating sprint with four miles to go to settle a battle with American rival Galen Roop, the 2016 Olympic bronze medalist. Now, Kirui crossed the finishing line in a time of two hours, nine minutes, and 37 seconds, while Rup finished in second position. Meanwhile, in the women's race, Egna Kiblegat conjured a similarly decisive burst over the closing stages to claim the race for the first time. The 2011 and 2013 World Marathon champion finished the race in a time of 2 hours, 21 minutes and 52 seconds, after breaking away from the field with around 8 miles to go. Rose Chimoli, a Kenyan-born runner who now represents 
Netherlands, Bahrain finished in second position, while Jordan Hasey of the United States finished in third position. Now, the Kenyan double came as a welcome boost for the East African superhouse of long-distance running. Kenyan athletics was left reeling earlier this month after news that Kenya's 2016 Olympic uh, Olympic Women's Marathon champion Jemima Simgong had um, failed a drug test. And still on athletics news, Uganda, the latest country to host the World Cross Country Championships after Morocco, South Africa, as well as Kenya, were commended by a uh, commended rather by Hamad Kalkalba Malbom, the president of the Confederation of African Athletics. Kalkalba Malbom was speaking at the conclusion of the IWF Council meeting in London last week. Yeah, I was very, very proud of. Uh the success of that event because previously many European countries or the American countries they didn't decide to come to Africa for many reasons I don't want to say the reason why they didn't come only 26 countries from the world came to Uganda but the African continent uh, we participated massively to that event and we got the very successful result and now we have been honored by the leading people of the country the president of Uganda, Mr. Museveni, and his wife, they were in the stadium from 2 o'clock till 6.30 o'clock, supporting the youth uh, of Africa, but globally the youth of our, our sports. So it was um, very important for Africa to show that we have the capability to organize uh, a successful world event like that. On to football news, English giants Chelsea have announced that stalwart John Terry will leave the club at the end of the season. The English defender has scored 66 goals in 713 games since his debut for the London club back in 1998, captaining the side on 578 occasions. During that time, Terry won the Champions League, the four um, as well as four Premier League titles, the Europa League, five FA Cups and three League cha- um, Cups, winning 14 major on, um, honours. In total. Now to tennis news, Andy Murray as well as Novak Djokovic will return to their tour at the Monte Carlo Masters this week after recovering from elbow injuries. World number one Murray last played in Indian Wales on the 12th of March and will resume against Gilles Miller or Tommy Robardo on Wednesday. Murray returned to the court in an exhibition match against Roger Federer in Switzerland on the 10th of April and has since been preparing on the Monte Carlo clay. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not. Wouldn't start the tournament unless I felt comfortable um, doing that. But I've, I've only really been serving at kind of my normal pace the last uh, couple of days. I was trying to build it up, you know, slowly um, to time it right for the, the beginning of the tournament. And you know, still got a couple of days left, uh, which is good. But uh, elbows uh, has been feeling better every day, so I'm positive about that. At the same time, Novak, um, Novak uh, Djokovic, rather, who rank, who's ranked second in awards, says he feels great after coming back with a win at the Davis Cup last week. Like Murray, the Serb missed last month's Miami Masters with an elbow issue and will play his first clay court match of the year when he takes on Frenchman Gilles Simon. You know, I always enjoyed being at home. This is what I call home at the moment because I live in uh, in Monaco for the last almost 10 years and uh, spent a lot of time on this court so positive energy is uh, regardless of results here always so uh, it's great sleeping in your own bed and uh, obviously I'm excited to, to participate in this tournament again. The Zion Sports News at the Sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa.
For more news from an African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Warring parties in South Sudan urged to show restraint and UN envoy calls on DRC parties to implement December agreement. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa is Davido with a song titled If.